Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. They were known as the Devil Dogs, the men of King Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th US Marines. Ordinary men from very different backgrounds and drawn from cities, towns and villages from across America. But they were tasked with a very extraordinary mission. To take on the victorious Imperial Japanese Army, comprised of some of the most effective, utterly ruthless soldiers in the world, and to defeat them. No easy task. To tell us more, I've invited award-winning historian Sol David back onto the podcast. Sol is an old friend of warfare by now and is the author of a new book aptly named Devil Dogs. By drawing on eye-opening first-hand accounts, he takes us on a journey, their journey, from Guadalcanal in 1942 to Okinawa and the shores of Japan in 1945. Enjoy. Hi, Sol. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Very good, James. It's nice to be back. Well, uh, we had to get you back on because you're prolific at the moment. SBS, then your book on Okinawa, and now Devil Dogs, which focuses in on the King's Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine, who were part of the legendary 1st Marine Division. Now, if I'm right, the 1st Marines carried out the majority of their fighting in the Pacific. So did you come across this history of the Devil Dogs when you were researching your last book on Okinawa, or how did this focus on Devil Dogs come about? I came across them as a unit, that is the 1st Marine Division fighting on Okinawa. And of course, that's the end game. They didn't know it at the time. It becomes the, you know, the final cataclysmic battle that leads to the dropping of nuclear weapons. But the question is, how did these guys get there and what have they been up to before then? I mean, I became fascinated in the Pacific War, frankly. So, but the great thing about the 1st Marine Division is that they were the original amphibious trained units in the American Armed Forces. And therefore, they were the first ones used at the beginning of the war in 1942 after the shock of Pearl Harbor and the massive advances of Japanese forces in the Southeast Asia and also across the Pacific. So the 1st Marine Division was the unit that took the fight back to the Japanese, I suppose you'd call it, in a ground offensive. And I wanted to know what had happened from that very first campaign, which is on Guadalcanal, all the way through to Okinawa. And it seemed to me 
given that that's a pretty big book to write if you're going to tell the story of the whole of the Pacific War, that it would make sense to focus in on a small unit. And I used, you know, I'm not going to hide from the fact that I used the template that was used for Band of Brothers, which is a single company. And the company, James, as you all know, is really home. I mean, you're part of a battalion, you're part of a regiment sometimes, you're part of a division, but the really tight-knit group is a company. And that's in the region of about 180 men, commanded by a captain or skipper, and then, of course, you've got a number of platoons and a number of specialist units within that. But it, it seems to be just about the right size for me to follow quite an intimate group of men. Well, no one's going to blame you for taking on the Band of Brothers model. We did the same thing when we did a D-Day special. We followed the Green Howards and all the way as they fought 10 kilometres inland on D-Day, further than any other company apart from, I think, perhaps the Canadians. So I'm not going to hold that against you. In fact, what it taught me was that when you're able to drill down through and take those kind of personal histories, you see how much they bond as a family. And you can also just tell those minute details that you really can't get across if you're focusing on the commanders or the broader strategy of the day. So was it the same with the Devil Dogs? Did you manage to kind of draw out more of their personality and who made up the Devil Dogs? Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And of course, what you realise, James, is that a single company can be representative of the whole American effort in the Pacific. They came from a cross-section of US society, as you would expect. They were everything from college boys from New England to sharecroppers from Texas. They were confidence tricksters from New York City. And they came from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of communities with a single purpose. And what's interesting, of course, about war is a great leveller. It doesn't matter what background you come from and they were united in their suffering and frankly given the conditions of fighting in the Pacific in their dying too and it's how they came through that I suppose and what they had to do to get through it that it makes it so interesting for me having said that I was quite greedy I mean I also wanted to tell the macro story I I don't dwell too long on the macro story but I wanted to give a sense of why they were at Guadalcanal and frankly what American generals and politicians were trying to achieve with the Pacific campaign as a whole and one quick aside about that is that Historians of the Second World War tend to concentrate on theatres, but you really need to see them all interlinked. Now, that's not to say that I was, you know, spending an awful lot of time talking about what's happening in the European theatre of operations at the same time. But when you're trying to explain grand strategy, you need to see it as a sort of global effort and not just what was going on in the Pacific. Absolutely. But when you do try and drill down into what was going on in the Pacific, it sounds like that you had the kind of historian's gift. You were able to go through a number of the memoirs of these men who fought there, who were within the Devil Dogs. And it seems like you had a number of talented writers in the mix. You really did get the historian's dream there, didn't you? Yeah, it was crucial, to be truthful. And it's one of the reasons why I chose K Company or King Company. I mean, King, of course, is the phonetic radio call sign that they would have used. But generally speaking, they called themselves Company K or K Company. But in any case, they had one of the most famous authors of the Pacific War, chroniclers of the Pacific War, Eugene Sledge, but not just Sledge. I mean, Sledge wrote With the Old Breed, which most people concede is probably the greatest memoir to come out of the Pacific War. It's got a little bit of competition, but I think most people concede that. But it just so happened that 
K Company also had a number of other very talented writers. And interestingly, James, they all came from the enlisted men category. I mean, you will know that most of the best memoirs that I've certainly covered in most of my previous books, when I say best, I mean the most articulate, the most thoughtful, tend to be written by officers because they are the more educated, of course, and they're more used to writing. It doesn't mean that they have any greater insight, but they find it easy to express themselves. Well, what is remarkable about K Company is you had four or five enlisted men who wrote long and detailed accounts, and I include Gene Sledge in that, that I was able to use as the spine of the book. And of course, you need to add to that contemporaneous documents, letters, diaries, and of course, all the official records that give you a sense of where everyone was and what they were up to. So it's really a knitting together of all that detail. But the first-hand accounts from some of the members of K Company are pretty hair-raising, I can tell you, but also very revealing. And I think brutally honest, unflinchingly honest. And Sledge, of course, has long been recognised as a writer in that mould. And I'm sure as you were going through each of those individual memoirs, you were almost coming across a different history each time, because no matter where you are on the front line, you're almost fighting a different battle or a different war in many cases. You know, you're going to be undergoing different levels of intensity of attack, different weapon systems potentially as well. Your conditions might be slightly different from the guy further down the line. So you get to tell multiple histories of the same battle. You definitely get a little bit of competition between the rifle platoons of K Company and then the support units like the mortarmen and the machine gunners. Now, Sledge was a mortarman and so was R.V. Bergen, who's another of the great chroniclers of K Company. But that's balanced by Thurman Miller, which is an account really of the first two campaigns. So if I was to sort of summarize what K Company and the 1st Marine Division did in the Pacific War. They fight four major campaigns, Guadalcanal, Cape Gloucester, Peleliu. Peleliu is like a mini Iwo Jima. It's an absolutely brutal conflict for a relatively small island. And then finally, Okinawa. Now, not a single member of K Company fight, fought in all four of those campaigns, partly because, of course, no one survived long enough, but also because they had a policy in the US military at the time that you would fight two campaigns or two years overseas. They did break that in the case of K Company or in the case of the 1st Marine Division, because by the time they got to the third campaign, Peleliu, they were desperately in need of veteran soldiers and they kept on about 5,000. Now, if I was to say that the 1st Marine Division is about 20,000 strong. In fact, by the time it gets to Okinawa, it's a reinforced division. It is 28,000 men. But they kept on about 5,000 of them. So some of the guys in my story, Jim McHenry, for example, who's a New Yorker, fights in the first three campaigns. But no one goes all the way through. But you do get this fascinating competition between the riflemen and the mortarmen. And the riflemen, of course, are right up at the point of the spear, as you know. But the mortars aren't that far behind. I mean, we're talking about 100 yards behind. And in the context of this brutal hand-to-hand -hand fighting that occurred through most of the island warfare of the Pacific War, that didn't make a whole heap of difference, to be truthful. But you do get these interesting perspectives and you do get a natural competition within K Company. I mean, not everyone was the best of friends. And you can see that Sledge finds the behaviour of some of his fellow Marines, you know, completely inexplicable at times. I mean, he understands what's going on, but he really can't get that you could descend to such levels of depravity and inhumanity. And I think probably the best way of thinking about this is it's not that bad men were involved, although one or two of them might have been. It's that they were brought to that condition just by the sheer experience of, and the difficulty, frankly, of fighting the Japanese. Because as we know, the Japanese tended not to surrender. If you try to take a Japanese soldier 
prisoner, even if he was wounded, he tended to fight on to the end. And this, of course, produced a response among the U.S. Marines. There was one particularly brutal action in Guadalcanal where a very famous patrol, it's known as the Gurkha Patrol, and Gurkha was the chief of intelligence, believe it or not, for the whole of the 1st Marine Division. And he goes out on a very small patrol to gather intelligence and he thinks to take some Japanese prisoners. And they actually get caught in an ambush. And the Japanese aren't content enough to just kill them all. They then cut them into little pieces and leave their body parts on the beach. And Thurman Miller and a number of the other guys from K Company come across this scene because they're sent out to try and recover the patrol. And that really turns things for them. You know, as Thurman Miller says, there's a wonderful quote in his book, what kind of war is this? What have they turned us into? Because, of course, from that point onwards, they're pretty hard on themselves. I can only imagine. And so what is it then, Sol, that gives this company the name of the Devil Dogs? Well, I mean, I've nicked devil dogs, which was a term from the First World War that applied to the whole of the 5th Marines. So you've got K Company, part of 3rd Battalion, as you explained at the beginning, and 3rd Battalion is part of the 5th Marines. But the 5th Marines had fought in a number of really tough battles towards the tail end of the First World War in Bellow Woods and a number of other engagements. And allegedly, and I say allegedly advisedly here, James, allegedly the Germans gave them this nickname in honour of their fighting prowess. Now, there's no doubt we know that the Germans were hugely respectful of the ability of the Marines to fight as infantrymen in those battles, you know, a long way from water. This is way before their amphibious capability of the Second World War. But actually, there's no written record from the German side that actually underlines that point. And I suspect, as a number of other historians do, that actually this was made up by an American journalist. But it doesn't really matter because the name was stuck and it's been used ever since. In fact, it's used to this day by the 5th Marines. So devil dogs is a general term for all of the 5th Marines. And of course, it applies, I think, very neatly, frankly, for the fighting in the Pacific War for K Company. Well, yeah, exactly. It surprises me it comes from that early because it sounds exactly like the sort of nickname you'd get fighting through all of those different battles in that campaign. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we're here to spoil you with the biggest names. Chinggis Khan, the thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet. We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well. And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle Ages to dynasty-shattering events. Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So when you're going through their memoirs, do you find that there's a particularly difficult period, a time that is almost too hard to bear and to comprehend, going through those battles from Guadalcanal, the Solomon Islands, and all the way through to Okinawa? What was the most difficult period for these men? I mean, one of the interesting things about these campaigns is how long they went on for. So Guadalcanal is a four-month campaign without relief. So you're not coming off the island. And actually, James, at the beginning of the Guadalcanal battle, as everybody will know if they've watched Thin Red Line, a wonderful film, or read the book, they're pretty much abandoned by the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy is defeated right at the beginning, just after the landings, and it withdraws. The supply ships go too. And 1st Marine Division is literally marooned on Guadalcanal. Meanwhile, the Japanese are pumping in more more reinforcements. So what you've got over this period of time is the guys, not enough food, not enough ammunition, more and more Japanese reinforcements coming on. And they're literally just clinging onto a perimeter around the airfield, which is why they've landed on the island in the first place, desperately trying to survive. I mean, it's really, they've turned what should have been an assault and a capture of the island into a siege of the US Marines on the island. So it's a brutal four month period in which their strength is being sapped by the conditions, it's sort of jungle conditions, very wet at times. They're getting all kinds of sickness, dysentery, disease, malaria. I mean, most of the guys come off the island at the end of it and they look like scarecrows. They're wearing the same clothes they went on. Their boots are in tatters, their clothes are in ribbons. And most of them have lost about a third of their body weight. And those are the ones who've survived, of course, because an awful lot of them don't come through it. But if you're really going to pin me down and say, what is the single most horrific sequence of events in the story? I'd have to say Peleliu. And Sledge himself said later on when he wrote his book. Now, I could go back to Okinawa because he fights in the last two campaigns, but I could never go back to Peleliu. I mean, described by one of his fellow K Company men as 30 days of the meanest slaughter that 
you know, men have ever inflicted on each other. And I just to give you one very, very quick example of this, there's a patrol that Sledge is involved in and they're out on the edge of a beach and they've basically been told to keep an eye out for the Japanese, but they must keep quiet because if the Japanese know they're there, you know, the whole purpose of them being there will go down the pan. Well, one of Sledge's comrades, one of the guys in K Company, loses his mind. He just becomes hysterical and they try and calm him down. First of all, they, you know, they try and soothe him. Then they give him some morphine to try and sort of knock him out, get him woozy. That doesn't work. He's still screaming 10 to the dozen. So then they hit him, punch him and try and knock him out. That doesn't work. And finally, in desperation, on the instructions of the officer who's there, they hit him with the flat of a shovel and knock him out. Now, unfortunately, they hit him too hard. The skull's cracked and he's killed. So they kill their own man in the desperation to keep quiet so the Japanese won't know you're there. That's the sort of extent that they're driven by circumstances. And all kinds of grim stuff is going on on Peleliu. The taking of gold teeth off, you know, and body parts of their foe, not always when the foe is dead. It becomes pretty commonplace. And Sledge writes about this in great detail, you know, and he says, we've just been taken to the depths of inhumanity and it's unfathomable. Of course, he's not happy with what he's seeing around him. He doesn't get involved himself, but he sort of feels a sympathy for what, his fellow Marines have been put through. So I'd say Peleliu, it's 30 days, it's unremitting. They're fighting on a coral island, which of course is also the sort of climate that Okinawa is. And this coral rock is almost impossible to dig into. So you can never dig a proper foxhole. And if the Japanese are using mortars and shell fire against you, then the rock becomes as dangerous as the actual shell fragments themselves. And it was an absolutely horrific battle in which, you know, Sledge comes through it there's a famous picture. The K Company goes into Peleliu with 235 men, basically, two officers and 233 men, and it comes out with 85. And the rest of them are either killed, badly wounded, or, and this is the giveaway, they come out as battle casualties in the sense that they've lost their minds. I mean, they can no longer go on. There are all kinds of mental illness as a result of this. And Sledge, for many years after the war, actually, is suffering from, obviously, we'd call today PTSD. I mean, he's got the long, long period to try and recover. And that's one of the reasons he wrote the book, actually, to try and process what he'd gone through. The thing about Peleliu, and correct me if I'm wrong, so the Americans have superiority in force, but the Japanese have been able to have a bit more time to dig into that, you know, difficult coral island and to defend themselves. But also, didn't they rename the island Emperor's Island as a means to ensure that the Japanese troops fought to the very last, to the death? I have to say, I haven't come across that tag, but you're absolutely right about the tactics the Japanese were using. I mean, in some of the earlier battles, they were going on the offensive, which was the Japanese way of war. It was a very aggressive means of fighting. As they realized the sheer amount of firepower and naval power that the Americans were bringing to the party by 1944, changed their tactics, decided to dig in. Now, they do exactly the same on Okinawa, of course, which why that's another meat grinder. And of course, what this does is it brings the Marines onto what are incredibly sophisticated and very well thought out defensive systems literally, as you say, dug into the rock. And it means you've got to winkle them out using flamethrowers and explosives. And it's just a brutal, slow, attritional process. Now, there were around 11,000 Japanese defending Peleliu, and it's an island that's only six miles long and two miles wide. And all of them, apart from about 80, die in the defense of the island. Meanwhile, the Marines lose about 8,000 
men themselves, not killed, but it's one of those few battles where the total casualties, there's almost parity on both sides, which will give you a sense of the, you know, the absolute horrific level of fighting that they had to go through. So it's an utterly ruthless stalemate. But is the decisive factor in the end the fact that the Americans just keep throwing resources at it, as they did in so many of these island campaigns? You know, they knew they had to get these islands so they could get closer to the Japanese mainland so that they could start to then launch those aerial assaults and try and bring the war to Japan. Was it just a matter of no cost is too much? Well, I mean, within reason, but yes, I mean, you've sort of hit the nail on the head. They kept feeding in extra troops. In fact, they began to use army troops. There's a lot of competition, as I'm sure you know, between the army and the US Marines in the Pacific War. The army tended to fight in MacArthur's part of the Pacific theater, which, of course, was the southern axis, and that was coming up through the Philippines. But they were also using army in some of the island campaigns, and this was one of them. And so Actually, the Marines are relieved after the first month, by which time the island is allegedly pacified. But of course, it hasn't really been pacified. They've definitely broken the back of the Japanese defences. So they're brought out after a month, which is why, of course, you get that quote about 30 days of the meanest slaughter. In actual fact, the battle goes on for another few weeks after that until the army finally takes complete control of the island and the Japanese commander in time-honoured Japanese fashion commits suicide. So I suppose the war comes to an end for the Devil Dogs when the war comes to an end, when you have victory at Okinawa and then, of course, you have the dropping of the atomic bombs and the signing of the surrender. They fought from the first until the very last. Do you know if these figures, you know, this family that comes together, that are kind of born out of the mean crucible of war, do they keep in touch as the years go by? Do you see documents of reunions? Have you been able to learn anything about the history from that? Or is it one of those things where they just keep themselves to themselves and don't really want to talk about it again? Well, it's a contrast, actually, interesting enough. I think fairly typical is their immediate reaction on coming back, having survived and come back. They just want to forget. And so they go into their own individual civilian lives. They marry, they have children, they get on with their lives. Some of them struggle, as I've already pointed out, but at least most of them don't do much about the reunions. The reunions are happening, actually, almost from the word go, particularly the first Marine Division reunion, which I think began in 1947, but it carries on, of course, all the way through these guys' lives. But towards about the 1970s, when, of course, they're 25 years on from the war, that's the point at which a lot of the people in my story link up with each other. They make contact with each other, partly as a result of Sledge's book, actually, because he wants to, you know, talk to some of the guys. There's a wonderful series of correspondence, which I include in the book, about him talking to the guys many years later, referring to some of the stuff that happened during wartime, but also what they've all got up to. And so that begins a period of healing, I think, for a lot of them, because what you realise is that the reunions are terribly important. They get a chance to talk to guys who've been through what they've been through. It's why we realise now, James, that soldiers shouldn't just be thrown back into civilian life. They need a period of decompression after the horrors of the battlefield. And, you know, in particular, these guys who fought in the Pacific, which I think, I've said it before with the Crucible of Hell book, plums the depths of horror comparable to anything I've ever read or seen about in my 25 years of writing military history from wars from, you know, the ancient period to the modern period. So it's a really grim conflict. And ultimately, in Sledge's case, the writing of the book and the other guys actually coming to these reunions, and you do feel this unbelievably powerful love between them all, this bond that I, you know, I refer to early on in the book, and of course, I deal with it at the end of the book, which is what gets them through. And there's a lovely quote at the end of it, 
it where one of them says, well, you know, we all went our separate ways, but nothing could break that brotherhood. And it's why ultimately there's a sort of wonderful feeling of gratitude towards Sledge for having told the story of K Company. Now, admittedly, he only tells it in the final two campaigns, which, interesting enough, when I spoke to Sledge's son, Henry, recently, who, of course, you know, the family are very careful at guarding the literary legacy of their father. He said the wonderful thing about you doing this book is you filled in the gap for what K Company was up to before my dad arrived. He only knew that the second half of the story. So now you've got the full K Company story. You know, I have to give a huge debt of gratitude to those writers, Sledge included, who made this whole project possible. Well, thank you as well, Sol, for bringing us that history and filling in those gaps of the Devil Dogs campaign. You've got to tell us, what is the full title of the book and when and where can we buy it? Well, the full title is, I've got it here in front of me, Devil Dogs, first in, last out, King Company from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. Fingers crossed it should be available in all good bookshops, online and maybe in the odd supermarket. Perfect. Well, congratulations. We're going to put a link in the show notes so people can go and buy it straight away. And thank you, as per usual, Sol, for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You're always welcome. Cheers, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.